the greatest thing to me that I love is uh, hearing the way that you honor the artists that you have on. Stories make the world go round. They capture our minds, pull at our hearts, and inspire change, growth, and development. It's just your genuine human appreciation on a deep, like, soul level for what artists do. This Your podcast is really dope. I'm your host, Cello, and welcome to Bedroom Beethoven's, the podcast where we discover some of the preeminent music producers and entertainers of our time, and I turn them into storytellers. What's up? This is J-Rock, and I'm right here. I'm chilling on the Bedroom Beethoven's podcast. That's what it is. Let's go. Let's go. Welcome, people of Earth, to episode 173 of the podcast. My guest this week is... My name is Terry Lynn Carrington. I play drums. I produce music. I am a professor at Berkeley College of Music. I consult. I do A&R. What am I missing? (laughs) <laughs> the, the resumes and you know you could you could sit there all day and, and say you've collaborated with so that oh yeah you asked for people i played with <laughs> well yes yeah, it's kind of too numerous to mention Lynn Carrington has never once pumped the brakes on developing her creativity and expanding her own professional success. The three-time Grammy winner has set the bar for contemporary jazz drummers and emerged as an inspiration and role model, particularly for female musicians. Everything from movies, television, studio albums, and more. Like she said, since 2005, she's been a professor at her alma mater, Berklee College of Music, where she serves as the founder and artistic director of the Berkeley Institute of Jazz and Gender Justice, which we will get to. She has curated a wide range of jazz compositions written by women composers from obscure to popular, historic to current, blues to bebop, and beyond in this important collection, which we will highlight at the end of this conversation. She has done it all and played with everyone. Prince, Herbie Hancock, Wayne Shorter, the list is long. And the fact that I'm able to get a portion of her day is not something I take lightly. So jazz aficionados, music lovers, and drumheads, please get comfortable and enjoy the tales therein. But before we begin, I'd like to thank everyone for tuning in. And to remind you guys, if you like the content, if you respect the hustle, I am building out a community on my Patreon at patreon.com slash bedroombeethovens. If you find any value in this show, in these conversations with these remarkable human beings, let's keep the show ad-free. And with a few bucks, you can show your appreciation. And if not, just tell a friend. And visit bedroombeethovens.com if you need more information on past episodes. 
and things of that nature. But without further ado, episode 173 with Terry Lynn Carrington. And remember, mind your business, but pay attention. Recently, though, I, I saw you uh, performing at Berkeley in celebration of the New Standards book, and there was a trumpet player named Ambrose Akimusuri. Uh, uh, and oh my God, I mean, you guys were both nominated for a Grammy last year, by the way. But let me tell you, I, I played trumpet for five years in grade school, and I just think if we played trumpet like that, I think I would have failed. I wasn't. It wasn't a performance-based program like at Berkeley, where there's a lot of going back and forth between tradition and new music and just improvisation like it reminded me how limited i was learning to play trumpet in my school and that watching that guy it was it was incredible oh yeah ambrose is amazing he's uh <laughs> he's a virtuoso and, and it got me thinking like for instance wayne shorter said that you made the the bass drum sing and the tenor drum sing and the snare drum not just rattle and i'm not too familiar with drumming to know exactly what he means but i'm i'm gathering it's the same way that Ambrose is on on trumpet, where if you have like a traditional teacher, you're going to play maybe very pedestrian or very vanilla. But if you want the bass drum to sing, if you want the tenor drum to sing, you have to put a little bit of your personality in your playing. Or maybe when you take away fear and you start playing courageously, maybe that's how you sound. Oh, wow. You, you really studied Wayne. Because that's exactly what he says. He he says we, we need to practice fear training opposed to ear training. <laughs> and... Uh, yeah, I mean, he said from the beginning, 1987, I think it was, that uh, when I auditioned, there were 14 drummers, and he said that I made the drums sound different, and that was such a high compliment. So I think he's always been thinking along those lines. You know, sound is important, like as as important as everything else, if not more. And his sound on the soprano or the tenor, is so individual and so impactful that he can play one note and make you cry. So uh, I'm very much out of the Wayne's shorter school of thought. That's amazing. And, and one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you, it, it, this concept, I'm amazed at more. Uh, the more and more I think about it is like, you know, nowadays you hear Gen Zers or even millennials like, you know, I'm going to take a year off from college and find myself. You know, I don't know what I want to be in this world or, hey, I'm 28 years old, I got time, I'm a late bloomer, et cetera, et cetera. And there's been a few people on this podcast who've told me, like uh, Steve Arrington comes to mind, where he was like an infant, and he would bang on pots and pans, and now he's a seasoned musician for 60 years. You know, you've been playing drums for, you know, 50 years, and it's almost like there was nothing else for you. You know, you got fed the raw materials to end up how you ended up. This wasn't an accident. You know, you were predisposed to your gift at an early age, and it was nurtured through your self-interest and the people who raised you, and it's in your bloodline. So when you when people hear you play or they go to a concert, they aren't seeing a person who learned how to play the drums like your magic. This is what you do. Absolutely, I uh, just kind of came out the womb doing music. My dad played drums and saxophone, and my grandfather played drums. So it was always there. I never had to discover music and jazz specifically 
It was just kind of part of my routine. It was in my blood. And um, I've been fortunate to never have had another gig. You know, I've, I've never had to um, do anything else for work. Uh, it's been very good to me. And I love the music so much. I mean, honestly, I, I, I try to be good to it as well. I mean, and your grandfather, he played with Duke Ellington, correct? Yeah, he was a local drummer. And so sometimes people like Duke Ellington would come through the Boston area and uh, pick up, you know, bands, pick up other players. So he would be a first call kind of uh, local musician that people would play with, Sammy Davis Jr. and um, others. I I think people forget like how far reaching that goes. I mean, Duke was born in the 1800s. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And, um, you know, Duke Ellington had a huge influence on Oscar Peterson and Oscar had a big impact early on your life. So the six degrees of separation between you and Duke Ellington is pretty close. (laughs) Yeah. It's probably less than, yeah, a lot less than six. My uh, first gig touring and actually my very first professional gig when I was 10 was with Clark Terry, who spent a lot of time playing with Duke Ellington. So uh, he would call it the school of Ellingtonia. And he would teach me things and tell me stories. And, uh, yeah, as far as Oscar Peterson, I mean, Duke Ellington had an influence on pretty much everybody in jazz that came in the next couple of generations. And uh, Oscar Peterson, for sure, was one of them. And Oscar Peterson, of course, went on to uh, become a real virtuoso on the piano. But what... People, uh, when I would tell that story, I would say I sat in with Oscar Peterson and I got a scholarship to Berkeley College of Music. And I would always forget to say that it was Ella Fitzgerald that took me by the hand and introduced me to Oscar and told her that I had just played with Clark Terry and that he should hear me. So she was you know, involved in, in that experience as well. That, that's pretty crazy because if you're in junior high school, I imagine a lot of girls are in choir or theater and you're in band. And when you start to look around, you see the big gender disparity. And I don't know, maybe if a kid bullied you or made some offhand remark, in the back of your mind, you're like, hey, these kids aren't hanging with Ella Fitzgerald. They can't touch me. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I mean, I did spend a lot of time, though, trying to fit in because, you know, it was a little awkward sometimes. And and I remember being in the sixth grade and Ebony Magazine coming to school and taking photos of me you know, while, while I was at school and trying to sort of play some of that down because I didn't want to really be different. I didn't want people to think that I thought that I was better than anyone because these things were happening to me. Uh, so I did a lot of trying to fit in. Then at some point, yeah, I'm hanging out with the teachers in junior high school, hanging out with a music teacher. And I had gone to see Herbie Hancock, and I brought an orange back that Herbie threw me in the dressing room. <laughs> so me and the music teacher were just, you know, tripping, eating this orange that Herbie had touched, you know. <laughs> and uh, Swart was the sweetest orange we ever had. So I was, you know, having these, yeah, these experiences that set me apart. And, of course, I realized something was different. So any little, I won't say bullying, because that didn't really happen, maybe... You know, a few people said some unkind things, but 
I, I, like you said, I was going out in the evenings hanging out with Dizzy Gillespie. So. Yeah, I mean, I mean, even Herbie Hancock's a good example. He's a child prodigy, but his mom was a secretary, and his dad was a high school dropout who became a meat inspector. So the emphasis wasn't on music; mm. it was on education. And he mm. went on to be an engineer. Of course, at twenty-two, he got hired by Miles Davis. But if you pick any alternate timeline, there could have been a good chance where he didn't mm. even become a musician because you know, with with you, there wasn't a deviation from that design for him. Mm. He could have. Yeah, I mean, that's interesting. Yeah, it's just, uh, well, Herbie's a Buddhist and Wayne Shorter, and, and I practiced Buddhism for many years as well. And I think it's it's karma, you know, the, the universe aligns for you uh, somehow and uh, unfolds as it should. And uh, yeah, the, things could have been very different for Herbie, but that's with any, any of us. Uh, I remember deciding, you know, I wanted to go to Berkeley. I'd been going once a week since I was 11. And my high school guidance counselor, uh, because I graduated third in my class academically, she thought I should be trying to go to some kind of Ivy League school or something. And, you know, if I had listened to her, maybe I, w- I wouldn't have kept playing, you know. Wayne Shorter, he was a sharpshooter in the Army. He could have been an assassin for the government. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> Well, so in middle school, what is your routine? Like, how many hours a day are you practicing? What was your routine like? Oh, I, I, I was never a huge practicer. Uh, I practiced like an hour or so, hour and a half sometimes, two hours sometimes, you know, a day, um, maybe five to six days a week. You know, I, I didn't, you know, I was always a day or two shy of a week. I was also just trying to hang out with my friends uh, outside and, I was always one of those people, even with uh, homework, like I did enough to make sure I got to my lesson and could play whatever I was supposed to play. The same thing I did with homework. I did enough to make sure I could turn in my homework and get a good grade. I never went that extra mile, <laughs> you know, and I, so I didn't make great practicing habits back then. And I, I don't think I love the instrument enough to devote just hours and hours and hours in a row to it. There was always something else that got my attention. And uh, so when people ask me about, you really love the drums? I said, well, not really. Uh, I like the drums a lot. And, and I feel you know, natural as a, as, a, as a rhythmic person, you know, helping to create the underlying uh, feeling of the music. But I like music much better and I like the drums. It's interesting that you say that. I almost didn't expect that answer because I, you know, I read I read that story about you know how you met Buddy Rich and he just had this fierce sense of ownership over your music and you just you won people over that way. You know, I I, I hear about Buddy Rich being grumpy. I read Miles Davis's biography. He mm-hmm. was kind of grumpy. I I read about mm-hmm. Joe Jones got upset and threw a symbol at Charlie <laughs> Parker's head. And I'm not saying that the great jazz musicians of yesterday were harsh characters to be around, but perhaps maybe the barrier to entry for a female musician, maybe it wasn't politics or record labels. Maybe it was a mix of misogyny and and women in the 50s, 60s, 70s, maybe the 80s didn't have that thick skin in the sense where if maybe if Max Roach walked over to you and broke your drumsticks in half and told you to get off the stage, maybe 999 out of a thousand little girls or teen girls or young women would have let that action affect them. Not everyone had that fierce sense of ownership over their music like you did. Yeah. But luckily, people's behaviors have changed. <laughs> you know, those stories that you just said, we're not hearing so many of those anymore because, you know, there's a lot of people that will just 
kick your ass if you did that, any of those things, you know, women included, <laughs> you know. So, yeah, when I met Buddy Vish the first time, he tried to shut me down and I spoke right up, you know. <laughs> and then that, then we became great friends because of that. And he asked me to play with his band. He got my, my endorsements. And it taught me at a very early age, I was 10, it taught me to speak up and to, to take ownership and to have pride. I mean, even when I was touring with Wayne opposite Miles, everybody was basically kissing Miles' ass all the time. It just looked awful to me. So I just never spoke to him. And then after, you know, a week or more in, you know, traveling on the same flights and all that, it happened to be my birthday and he walked by and he just stopped and looked at me and said, happy birthday. You know, and I, I realized because I wasn't chasing around trying to talk to him, you know, it made me a little more intriguing uh, or, you know, something like that. So I don't know, you know, you just figure it out as you go. And, uh, you know, I think our personalities definitely have uh, something to do with it. And I've always had a relatively strong personality and was raised in a way to to have confidence, you know. Uh, everybody didn't have uh, that kind of access to the music and to the musicians that I had. So I was also very fortunate like that. But I was, you know, like my father wanted a, a little boy and he got a little girl, but I think I ended up being the best of both worlds, you know. In the eyes of eternity, the essence is neither well, I was just going to say, but you know, why I started this Berkeley Institute of Jazz and Gender Justice is because I realized, you know, like you said, you know, I don't, I won't go as far as to say 999 women would have ran away if Max Roach broke their sticks. I, I don't think it's that quite a high number, but it would be a very high number. And the reason why I created the institute is, you know, recognizing finally in my 50s that you know all women aren't the same. And you shouldn't have to be a woman that will go head to head and toe to toe with any man in order to make it. You shouldn't have these extra burdens um, to worry about, and you should be able to have access and uh, study and learn the music uh, in a cultivating and nurturing environment. Um, you should be able to play at a jam session. You should be offered solos in your high school band or your middle school band or your college band. Even before you're ready, you should have people looking at you thinking, oh, you're going to be good one day, not thinking, oh, you're never going to amount to anything. So these are the reasons why we started this institute.
Well, I, uh, I am going to talk a little bit more about the Institute. And uh, also, I want to get a little bit more clarity on the relationships that you formed. You know, there's there's George Coleman and uh, Kenny Barron and Buster Williams, who are all very much alive 40 plus years later. Are you still able to learn from them? Do you still foster relationships with people? Oh, I spoke to all of them pretty much within the last couple of weeks <laughs> because uh, I did an album with them when I was 16. Maybe that's why you referenced those specific people. Um, I did an album with the three of them when I was 16 that's going to come out um, sometime early next year, I guess. I'm very much in touch and uh, still learn. Yes, I, I played some gigs last year with Kenny Barron, uh, which were, you know, it was a pleasure for me. You know, these are masterful musicians. My career has changed and, you know, my music, music musicianship has grown and, you know, gone a bit in a different direction. Uh, than it was when I was 16 or 17. But my foundation uh, comes from having had access uh, to these great musicians, the three of them and and many others. Uh, And I I realized that that's such a huge part of my foundation. I learned so much from them, and I will always be grateful and thankful and always revere them in a certain way because uh, this music is a continuum. You know, I... I am a continuum of of these great people, uh, they, and I hope that you know my students uh, and people, young musicians that play with me, feel the same way because I'm trying to pass down to them the things that I learned uh, from all of these great musicians. It's funny you say that because, like, your first foray as an adult at age 18, you moved away from home, and it was to tour and play with Clark Terry, who just wrapped up his tenure with the Tonight Show band. Uh, you played with the Arsenio Hall show. At one point, did he used to tell you like these were lucrative stability jobs? These are steady jobs. And from there, you kind of aspired to get a job like that? Or is that just total coincidence? No, it was just a coincidence. Um, He didn't really talk a a whole lot about that time. Uh, Not a whole lot, you know. Um, So I and I didn't ever I never thought that I would be doing late night television. That was probably the furthest thing from my mind. Uh, But it just kind of fell in my lap. And I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it a lot because I've always thought, you know, for myself, being versatile was important, Um, not just to work, which it is important to work, but it was also because that's who I was musically. You know, I, I liked a lot of different things. And I think I was of the mindset uh, to be, involved with different things. I won't say a jack of all trades because I don't think I was quite that, but, you know, be involved with different things musically opposed to really trying to just master one thing. And so I think I've, I admire people that did that, like Kirby Hancock and Quincy Jones. Those are two people I really admire their career trajectory because they weren't being... Uh, defined you know they were they were kept reinventing themselves and, and we can't downplay the the networking factor of that too i mean i think people forget about vibe with sinbad the last episode was shaka khan and prince i mean that's crazy i remember that well you opened for prince yeah and you opened yeah, for prince i did you really do your homework dude <laughs> i'm impressed this is the best interview i've done in a long time <laughs> <laughs>
here's kind of a low hanging question though. You know, we recently lost the great Pharaoh Sanders. There was some overlap with you as well. What can you kind of tell us about him that maybe maybe the masses don't know about? Any cool stories? Well, you know, he wasn't he was a, not a man of a, a, I'm saying a double negative. He was a man of a few words. Uh, he didn't, you know, really, you know, talk a lot. He was pensive, you know. He was uh, a thinker. He was, um, you know, spiritual. Uh, he knew what he liked and what he didn't like. Um, he he let the music speak for him, you know. Uh, he 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 was, you know, a country guy in some ways, you know. I know he's from Arkansas, right? You, you know, you felt that energy from him. You felt like he saw a lot, uh, a lot of things, some good, some bad, and he put it all in the music. He felt, you know, like he was very serious about it, but most importantly, you know, he did the same thing, you know, that Wayne Shorter was able to do, and, and every great, great musician, he put his whole life and his whole experience into his sound. It's hard to tell a, a grown person what what he should do or what he shouldn't do. I don't know about myself. I'm still trying to figure out how to deal with my own energy and electricity just within myself, you know. He was able to, you know, connect with his humanity and everybody else's just from his sound. And, um, you know, that's what I would have to say about Pharaoh, a very special player, very special person. I don't have any anecdotal stories, but, um, you know, he made his mark in the music and he'll be missed. Yeah, that leads me to like the genre as a whole because jazz originated as black music. It was created from the black experience. And as black music changed with the times, you said that you think people kind of forgot where it came from as well as blues. Why do you think hip hop doesn't have this problem? Is it because hip hop is only 40 years old? Maybe because 95% of the charts reflect African-American talent. How does something like that happen to jazz? I mean, it's an interesting question. I mean, hip-hop is an extension of R&B, which is an extension of the blues. Hip-hop, you know, is the black music of the times. And uh, somehow R&B still kind of stayed, you know, the R&B has evolved uh, to be, like today's R&B is very, very different, right, than the R&B I grew up with. And even today's hip-hop is different than how it started. So this stuff keeps evolving. Um, but this was always commercial music. You know what I mean? This was always something that was reflecting the masses. Uh, it, was, it was always part of you know, pop culture, for, le- for lack of a better way of saying it. Whereas jazz was, in the beginning, yes, part of popular culture. Um, it was, uh, you know, music you could dance to. And then bebop came along. And in jazz's, I think, you know, this is the way I'm seeing it, in jazz's uh, decision or, or, or quest to 
be taken seriously like classical music and playing in halls where people sit down uh, and, and listen to you. And, and it took, it kind of took the dance away from it. Uh, and it became, you know, even more interesting in many ways, musically. It's very serious, you know, music and high art form. You know, people aren't necessarily dancing to classical music. I mean, back, you know, in, in the day, yeah, you had this string quartet playing certain kind of music that, you know, people could dance to, and you, you know, you see on all old movies and all that. But, uh, I think when you remove uh, the the dance from from something that was so connected to dance, uh, it's don't get me wrong, it's still grooving, and you could actually still dance. There was bebop dancing, but the masses were not as you know. It just kind of moved towards R and B. That that you know that the blues part that stayed grooving in a way you could dance. Um, I think the masses just st- stuck with that. And jazz became, you know, even more so a high art that involved, uh, you know, money to go to the shows and, uh, you know, people have to sit down and pay attention and listen and expand their minds. And a lot of people are just trying to, uh, to uh, not, ex- not necessarily expand their minds, but trying to just release and empty their minds from, you know, all of the struggle and, and problems in, in life. So I think that that kind of separation happened and continued in black music. The problem is, you know, so many black people don't see jazz even as being their music anymore. And they don't see it as being contemporary. Now, that's a real problem for me because jazz has continued to evolve. And it's it's such a fertile time for it. There's so much interesting stuff happening and people mixing jazz. You know, today's jazz mixes, you know, hip hop and R&B and indie rock and uh you know, all these other things, dance, music, electronics. Uh, today's jazz is incredibly contemporary. But then you have people, I mean, I had a record company, a hip-hop executive, say to me once, um, for, we served together on the board of trustees for the Grammys, and he said, uh, oh, you, you, you're, because I said something about jazz being black music, and he said, oh, I always thought of it as being white. Now, this was a hip-hop vice president of of a company, of a label. So anyway, I just feel like, you know, this, this problem is, you know, detaching us because um, we somehow just only stayed as, as a whole, as a, as a large group, you know, African-Americans, we somehow stayed more interested in uh, the music that was less complicated and, and, and easy to just kind of hang out and dance to and, and I love hip hop, um, but I don't appreciate, you know, jazz, you know, being the stepchild either. But there's only one, one and a half percent or so of people listening to jazz in this country and 33 or something like that percent listening to hip hop. So this is the fight that we had, the struggle that we had. Well, what was that percentage? You said one percent? About one, one and a half, something like that. Oh, my yeah. gosh. that's It's crazy. It, it's like... It, it, it kind of upsets me because, like, if you take a classic hip hop record like Shook Ones by Bomb Deep, that's a Quincy Jones arrangement with Herbie Hancock's piano. And I don't think the casual music fan knows that. There's so much jazz DNA in hip hop. Oh, absolutely. There's all kinds of YouTube uh, clips and, you know, analog- analogies and, you know, showing people this. I mean, Bob James is the most uh, sample hip hop uh, 
sampled artists in hip hop. Yeah, I don't think there's one sample on that on that record that hasn't been taken. Yeah, you're right. And you know, and you know, I I want you to let me know if I'm off base with this comment, but I I kind of took a back seat and I looked at um, Soul, the Pixar movie, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I I wanted to ask you because. I don't know if this perpetuates that problem. Like you consulted on that film, but when that film wins a Grammy award for the soundtrack in the media, I only see Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross. I see less about you. I see no Herbie Hancock, no Tia Fuller. And even if you guys act as consultants or like Tia Fuller was a member of the actual band. I mean, the reason why we pay Will Smith $80 million to voice a fish is the same reason why you and Herbie Hancock should have been on that movie poster. It's star power. I don't even. I didn't even know that Herbie Hancock was involved in Soul mm. until this week, and I feel like your names could have only improved the marketing for the film. Mm. Yeah, but you know, <laughs> like everything else, I mean, they were very respectful, you know, to us. And uh, but like everything else, I think um, you know they're they're going for the you know the, the names of people that they feel uh, are more connected to you know, mass the masses to pop culture. So like Questlove and um, even John Batiste who's on a TV show, right? So this is before his record success, but um, yeah. And then the actors, uh, yeah. I mean, could they have used our names a little more? Sure. Uh, but I, I, I didn't expect that. I didn't expect any more than, than what happened. And they were very, very nice to us. I was just appreciated that they called us for consulting that they trusted us to listen to what we had to say. You know, I think the one thing about Pixar is they really go deep with um, their research to make sure that they're getting it right as right as they can. And um, I really appreciate that because I don't think everybody does that. I think so too. I'm shocked. I'm still shocked by that 1% number. So if they made a whole film based on a genre that 1% listens to, I think that's (laughs) monumental in itself. I mean, uh, it's going to take me a few days to marinate with that number. That's incredible. Um, You know, (laughs) in in 1959, six years before you were born, the Grammy Academy created the category for best jazz instrumental album. And you were the first female musician to win a Grammy in this category. And it took 54 years to do it. <laughs> if I ask you why, would there, would there be a painfully obvious answer to that? Or do you think there are some reasons that might surprise people? <laughs> well, I think it's painfully obvious, actually, you know, like you said it earlier, I think misogyny, you know, boys club, I mean, who's defined as the creators of the music and the serious players for the most part, it's always been men with a few, exceptional women and we have to get out of that uh, idea of exceptionalism uh as being a good thing the why is is, is yes incredibly obvious you know, it's this it's the thing that makes us struggle with you know who who had record deals like who was marketed who was was taught from the beginning that this is their music and they can you know make a living doing this and they can be geniuses, <laughs> you know, I mean, just, let's just some men just have had the support and the space to develop their craft because people looked at them as geniuses or potential geniuses and women, you know, weren't necessarily looked upon the same way when, if they were, took an interest in jazz or had the, the talent. And, you know, I think it's part of that goes back to, 
in the beginning, men playing music was a respectable uh, living. Like after slavery, you could finally travel. Before, you know, while slavery was happening, right, you couldn't travel if you were African-American. But then you could travel. So you could take your guitar and, uh, you know, go stand, you know, on the corner and play and, and get some money or go find a juke joint or go to a club or, you know, go to another state. Um, but women couldn't do that because it wasn't safe. I mean, even when Mary Lou Williams traveled for the first time, I don't know, 20s, I think, late 20s, uh, she was with Fletcher Henderson's band. She got raped on the train, you know, in her late teens to go to her first recording session in Chicago and had to basically get off the train and go play anyway. You know, so it it wasn't safe, you know, for women to travel by themselves. And that, you know, and then even jam sessions and late night hanging, you know, with men that were drinking, none of that was safe. I mean, Melba Liston, I just listened to her uh, oral history and I, I did part of these excerpts from oral histories for a part of my um, installation I did at the Car Center in Detroit. It's called Shifting the Narrative, Jazz and Gender Justice. And then part one of that installation is called New Standards. And um, listening to these oral histories and picking out stories, she's explaining how she was repeatedly raped in the bands she was playing with. Oh, my gosh. You know, in Dizzy Gillespie's band. You know, so... Uh, yeah, stuff was that's crazy. horrific. And it, but when you're when you're crafting the waiting game with the social science, your building process for that album was to surround yourself with people that were younger than you. Was there anything eye opening? Like maybe they they were telling you about their hardships and prejudice in the state of jazz today that you had no idea was even happening in like modern times. Yeah, well, that's exactly why I formed the institute because I was hearing you know these stories about their hardships that I I, I can't say I had no idea was happening, but that I didn't um, relate to because they weren't happening to me. Uh, and, you know, things that were just unfair and not things that would make you quit because it wasn't fun. It's, it seems like so many of these you know, band directors and teachers just made it not fun for women because they, they, didn't, they didn't really want them around, right? So, uh, it treated them in a way, kind of make them go away, and that happened. So that's the thing that once I realized everybody wasn't like me, they, they didn't have the same kind of access and advocacy that my dad provided, I, I started understanding better my mission and purpose in, in helping to change this. The music itself will not develop to its fullest potential until this happens, and until there's, you know, more equitable gender representation uh, with the people that are creating it, the performers, the composers, you know, all, all the way around. Um, so that's kind of the reason for creating this space. Yeah, I want to tell everyone that, uh, you know, after two years of curating and designing uh, jazz and gender justice, uh, which you touched upon, shifting the narrative, it's uh, at the Car Center down on East Kirby Avenue in Detroit. Uh, it's part one of four. It's open. It's free to the public now through the 27th of November. And um, I have two new albums that just came out. And you know, I've talked a lot about new standards because, uh, you know, put so much work into that. But the other one that I'm really proud of is uh, live uh, at the Detroit Jazz Festival, Wayne Shorter, Esperanza, uh, Spalding, Leo Genovese, and myself. 
And that's the capturing of a really beautiful concert that we did with Wayne. It's one of his last concerts, um, you know, recorded concerts. Um, and it, it, there was, a, you know, magic between us as friends, uh, as, as people that had worked a lot together with each other uh, and had a lot of mutual respect for each other. And it really, without, you know, much rehearsal at all, uh, all of that love and uh, fellowship between all of us really came together that evening. And we were also honoring Jerry Allen, who had passed away earlier, you know, a couple months earlier, and she was supposed to be on that concert and didn't make it. So um, that's something that's come up recently as well that I'm pretty proud of. Yeah, I mean, you, you said that you spent two years conceiving the four-part installation and then what we just talked about, the new book, uh, New Standards, 101 Lead Sheets by Women Composers. You spent four years on that. So the projects that you do, they're not they're not weekend projects. They're big undertakings. <laughs> yeah, they take a, a minute. Even a social science album, which you know I'm you know proud of as well. Uh, that came out I think in 2018 or 19, but that took three years to to make. Yeah, this is amazing because you know. First off, in addition to profusely thanking you for your time and coming on this podcast, I do want to thank you for the barriers you're breaking. And I truly think that you're making the world a better place for my two daughters to grow up in this world. So you inspire me and I'm honored that we could sit down and chat. Uh, thank you so much. I appreciate it. It was really great talking to you.